Good evening, everyone, and this is the Wilderness Tamer podcast, episode number 20, Flattening the Curve. Quick shout out to the show's sponsors is Dry Pocket Apparel. They are the future of swimwear that come with an integrated dry bag as a pocket with a self-sealing magnetic strip that is certified to 100 feet down, and it will keep your phone dry as a bone. So go check them out on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and as well as drypocketapparel.com. Now, to save you a little bit of money, use promo code all caps wilderness to get you 25% off your order. My other sponsors are Nomad Outdoors and City Bonfires. My guest this week, which is probably the coolest guest I have had on this podcast to date out of my 20 main episodes, I'd say this is the coolest episode. My guest was Warren Womack. I really couldn't believe he hit me back up through Facebook because I have seen him on other podcasts such as Hunting Public and the Stick Boys. If you want to check those guys out, they are an awesome platform and very knowledgeable. But this guy started hunting whitetail when he was 24 and he's 77 now. Still climbing trees, still slaying deer. So if you want to learn something from this episode, give it a listen, especially for you bow hunters coming up this September. He might just give y'all that piece of the missing puzzle that y'all are looking for. So I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, and I hope y'all do too. And thank y'all for supporting the podcast. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing fine, Connor. How about you? Good, good. Am I coming in good? All right, you're hearing a lot better than last time, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, this is what we should have done the first time. It's been a lot better, I believe. Yes, yeah, sir. It's something like, you know, during contracting and stuff, some job just got to step back and take another look at it, you know? <laughs> right. Well, I'm just glad you didn't post the other thing because I don't think neither one of us has been satisfied with it. No, sir. I wasn't. But welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you want to, uh, introduce yourself and tell a little bit about you, and then we'll get started. Okay. Well, first of all, my name is Warren Womack, and uh, I'm born and raised in Louisiana. Lived here all my life, except when I was working on the road for my local union, uh, local union 995, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Uh, married my high school sweetheart when I, while I was in the Navy. And we had three kids, and we got a ton of grandkids and great-grandkids. In fact, I got a grandchild and, and uh, three great-great-grandchilds over here right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hard that. That's what this weekend, my wife's with her. They're doing their annual trip with her, her mom, and my oldest down at Disney. So I'm Mr. Mom and at the house with my youngest this weekend. <laughs> oh, you got your hands full, don't you? Yeah, she's nine months old. <laughs> That would really make you appreciate your wife more when she comes back. You are not kidding. <laughs> Those women do a lot, that's for sure. Yes, sir, for sure. So, uh, getting into it, what age did your, well, I'll start with this. You're pretty much, I'd say, if there's a PhD to be had for hunting whitetail, I'd say you deserve it. When did uh, you? <laughs> I think I'm way overrated, to tell you the truth, Connor. I just got a little more recognition that a lot of my hunting friends have, which is, you know, I think the world of their hunting abilities, you know, I know exactly what they can do and what they've done, so I, I think I'm a little overrated, but I enjoy talking about it anyway. Yes, sir. I enjoy talking about whitetail hunting or anything, anytime. So when, uh, <clears throat> when did you start getting into hunting and then kind of gravitating towards whitetail? Well, you know, I was born into a hunting family. Uh, my, my mother had uh, six brothers. And uh, all of those were hunters, and my dad was a hunter. He had a brother that never got married, and he hunted probably every day of his life. So it was kind of a just a, a tradition that I was born into. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I started off small game hunting. They didn't have any deer in the area at all where I lived in Louisiana, you know, uh, until I was grown, basically. So I, I was raised up squirrel hunting and, and uh, rabbit hunting and just small game. But doing that, I learned to be comfortable in the woods, learned how to navigate, and uh, became somewhat of a woodsman. So it was kind of like a, a apprenticeship program for getting into deer hunting. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because even anytime you're out in the woods, you're going to learn about something. 
you're gonna see right. you know some kind of sign or see an animal do a behavior you know yeah you, you gain a lot of experience more time you put in the more more you see and recognize and you just gain a lot of experience which you which that's what you need oh yeah for sure now you're speaking there wasn't a lot of whitetail that kind of back around then that was kind of the same way in georgia or at least in my region back here in the day around the 60s 70s and they said they actually brought like out west whitetail down here and let them breed into the population and you can tell i have family that has some land and there's some big deer but when did they how when did the population start kind of coming around and you get into deer hunting or for there to be a huntable yeah. population well, I'm sorry, the only deer I knew in the area was in the northeast corner of Louisiana. Yes, And along the Mississippi River, and they had some across the river in Mississippi, too. And I think it was just kind of a trickle migration that they just started expanding and, uh, and moving their habitat and, uh, and just kind of worked their way down in our area. But it was a long time. I was actually 24 years old before I killed my first deer, which was actually the second year I hunted. Mm -hmm. So it was. It was kind of a, a late boomer, I guess you'd say, compared to nowadays when, when uh, dads are bringing their kids when they're five, six, seven years old to shooting houses and, and shooting deer. So yeah, yeah, that's true. That's I was eleven years old when I killed my first deer, which well, my dad wasn't with my dad actually. It was with some of my cousins. Is how I got started. My dad was more of a fisherman for the main thing. We kind of got started together. So we grew up making the same mistakes, hunting together like that. Yeah, it's all a learning process. You never, you never hunted enough where you don't have room to learn something else. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, what was the, I say, for equipment wise, what were you running when you first got into it, and what got you kind of started into archery hunting? I started, I started archery hunting in 1968, and I, uh, you know, I didn't hunt much. It was just getting my feet wet in and everything, and I, I had just a, a flimsy fiberglass bow, you know, with mismatched arrows and and a. Uh, different different broadheads and stuff and uh and from there i migrated to a a, a, a real recurve bow i would call it and then uh i hunted with with that that's the only choice we had until 75 in 1975 i had a chance to buy one of the first three compound bows that came to the baton of jerry oh wow <laughs> that's pretty cool a guy named ken robeek had a little backyard archery shop at his house and he called me and uh he said he, he had three that come in, and you know I'd I'd seen pictures of them in the magazine. They'll find read about them, heard about them. I'd never seen one. And he said he had of those three. He said he was going to keep one. And he had a, another guy that was going to buy the other one. And he was giving me a chance at the third one. And uh, and I said, yeah, I want it. So I got it, and actually got it three days before making a uh, elk and mule deer hunt in Colorado. Oh wow! Looking <laughs> at practice with my recurve, you know, all summer getting ready for this trip, and and uh, had like. Pins out to forty yards on my on my recurve, which back in those days, sight pins was a normal instead of the exception like they are nowadays. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I was was ready to go out there with my recurve, and he surprised me with his compound. But it took me two days to get it set up, and I was shooting it better than I was my recurve. So I brought it to Colorado on the hunt, and I hunted with a compound bow. I went through about five different compound bows until the ninety. 93 season was my first, 93, 94 season was my first year back with a recurve bow. And I, I'd made a commitment. By then I'd hunted probably 15, 16 years with a compound and had a lot of, lot of success. And uh, I said, well, I got to make a commitment. If I'm going to go back, I'm going to hunt the whole season with it, no matter if I don't even even kill a deer, you know? You yeah, know? yeah, for sure. But I made a commitment and, and uh, it worked out good. I, I had a real good year. So then I went ahead and, and got me a custom-made, handcrafted, uh, Katie Woods bow made, and uh, and I'm still hunting with it to this day. Oh wow, that's nice. What's so funny is in '93, that's what year I was born. <laughs> that's pretty crazy. That was that was a big change for me going back to a, to a, a traditional bow in '93, '94 season. Yeah, I heard that. That's kind of me. I I started shooting. My first bow was a recurve that my dad got for me. I want to say it was like a 40-pound bow, and I was like 10, 11 shooting shooting in the yard of squirrels and whatever else I could. And one day I had my mom help me string it and she broke the limb. Well, fast forward through that, I got into shooting compounds around 13 and then I started shooting into tournaments really heavy. And I did that all the way up till I was a senior in high school and I kind of got burned out on it and just had enough of it. 
but now that I kind of took a 10 year hiatus of getting married and making, growing a family. And I've kind of gotten back into traditional archery because compound just didn't really have the flair as it did or used like back then to me. Yeah, I can understand that. It's kind of a cycle. You, you go through one thing, you're ready for something different. Yes, sir. Now, what, uh, getting back to that wet, out west hunt, how did that go? And what was that like? Because that's like on my bucket list for sure. And I, I want to start off on mule deer and kind of work my way up to elk. I got some buddies that want to go elk hunting first, but I'm kind of like, ah, that's a big bite to chew, you know, just to go out there and be new at it. Well, I was always interested in out west and everything, and never had made the commitment to go tr try it. But we went in uh, during the 1975 season, and uh, one of the deciding factors for us going was the license was going to go up. And uh, they were going to increase $100 from one season to the next for deer and elk. And that, the deer license, were, I think, if I remember right, they were $35 for the deer license and 45 for the elk, and they were going to go up to $100 and $150 for the following year. So, you know, back then that was a lot of money. And yeah. <laughs> three of us uh, decided that we were going to go out there and, and try to experience and everything. So mm -hmm. went out, I had a 74 Bronco then, and we, we fixed it up. All three of well, two of us went out there and picked up the, the third guy at the airport in Denver, and then we went on and made a hunt. But we was crowded into a, a, a little small cab, uh, yeah. a Bronco, and made a hunt. But we we uh we got in some elk and uh, had kind of a bad experience. And then I wound up shooting a, a cow elk that I didn't get to recover for a oh. long, detailed story about it. But uh, and I get into details when I try to tell a story. So <laughs> yeah. No, you're good. That. Anyway, I didn't get to recover it, but I did shoot a, a mule deer. Doe and, and uh, got to bring her home with us. Hey, at least you came back home with something. That's all that matters to me. Well, I'm not it was, a, it was a great experience. We were camping, you know, out and, and just the different kind of country and all that. But uh, I, I never went back that far. You know, I hunted uh, a mm -hmm. little bit of the west from where I'm at now, but never went back there. It was kind of a trip of a lifetime for me. Yeah, I definitely. I bet it was some beautiful country. Like myself, I was born in Fairbanks, Alaska. I was a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force. And I've always had the the dream or feel the grab or like the pull to go back and go hunt a sheep or a moose. I want to check that box someday, but I think that'll be in my late forties. <laughs> Funny you mention that. I got a grandson that's in at Air Force Base in, in uh, Santa Claus, which is right out of Fairbanks right now. He's been there for a year now. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's what they lived there for about two or three years after I was born, and they moved back down here to South Georgia. I wish they would have stayed up there, in my opinion, but <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> I got a lot of good friends from Georgia, good bow hunting friends, and everything. You, you're in good hands around there. Oh, I ain't arguing. Georgia's a good state, man. You could be at the beach in four or two hours and be in the mountains in four. It's a diverse state, especially for hunting. I love it. Got a liberal deer bag limit you can uh, live with too. It's really nice. Yes, sir. You can get ten does and two antler buck. And I myself, I haven't known anybody that's limited out yet. But I, I think most I've killed one year was six. And that I was can a, tell you a couple of guys that's limited out a couple of times with trad bows. <laughs> now that's awesome. Hey, might want to give them their number. I ought to have them on. <laughs> I tell you what, that, that's probably the two best bow hunters in, in the state of Georgia for sure. Now, getting back to the bow hunt thing, what kind, what poundage was your recurve that you're hunting with? Uh, the the uh, first one I hunted with, that little fiberglass bow, uh -huh. and, uh, it was about 35 pounds, I guess, something like that. And okay. the arrows were, uh, they were fiberglass arrows back in those days. I didn't shoot the wood arrows. I didn't care for those. And then uh, the next bow I went to, it was a... Uh, it was a Browning Explorer too, and it, it was 55 pounds at 28 inches. It was a 60-inch bow. And then from there, I went to my Arcadian Woods bow, which is 58 pounds at 28 inches. And it's a 60-inch it's a bow also. I bet that thing will sling them. <laughs> what kind of broadheads were you running? Well, when I shot a compound, I shot a, a three-blade aerial hunter. Mm -hmm. Satellite aerial, I think it was, and, and a... I shot those in my compound days, and when I went back to Trad in 93, I, I went to a Zwicky. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. I, I with several different two-blade heads, you know. Oh, I'm, yeah. That's an old-school company. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 
I'm probably the least technical hunter that you'll ever talk to that shoots a bow. I don't worry about all that stuff. I, I don't think I can shoot good enough to tell the difference. As long as the air flies, tr you know, true and goes where I'm looking at and it's got a short, broad head on it, I'm not really concerned about it that much. That's how I am. As long as I can hit where I'm aiming at and it kills, I'm good. <laughs> Other than that, I don't worry about it too much. Yeah, I'm more of a hunter than I am an archer anyway. You know, it's just the bow is just a fun tool to use. It is. And see, that's what I... I kind of got into tournament archery to make me a better hunter. And that's what my group of friends that I was doing it with kind of did. Cause we'd go on hunting trips together through the 4-H team and all that we were on together. And it, I mean, it helped. It definitely helped. Cause we went to, from, I won state in 2009 and then we went to nationals and all that. So it definitely pays off practicing. I'll say, <laughs> or at least having a bow in your hand. Time. Congratulations. That's quite an accomplishment. What you achieved there. That's pretty good. Oh, I appreciate it. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, but, uh, Speaking of getting on hunting public land and all that, what back I'd say in your physical peak, what was what was your methodology or strategies on hunting that? Kind of getting into how you're hunting whitetail since season's right here on the doorstep. Well, the biggest thing for me was daily in-season scout, and I, I would uh, spend anywhere between two and four hours every day I hunted, looking for the best sign I could find to offer a primary. Uh, a high percentage tree, tree to hunt at, you know, which was a usually a primary food source. I spent a lot of time walking, a lot of time looking, and I'm, I'm looking for for sign I can't walk away from. You know, a lot of time it's feed trees, which is all different kinds of oak trees and soft mass trees, such as persimmons and honey locusts, beans and stuff like that. But uh, just tremendous amount of walking and looking and climbing, and then also hunting more than one place a day you know instead of hunting all day at one place i would try to hunt two or three different places all day oh really way you, you yeah. spend a couple of hours in a tree at a time and it, it, it's really hard to sit from from dawn to dark in, in a tree in oh one place. oh yes sir trust me i'll spend six to eight hours in my millennium lock on but i think i've kind of had an epiphany this season i'm going to kind of do like you say just move around a little bit more it's a huge mental and physical challenge to sit in one spot from dark, from daylight to dark. And, and uh, if that way, you know, for all my scouting I did, I scouted so much I found several places to hunt. Usually I thought it was good. So it gave me a chance to give each one of them a chance, you know. Mm -hmm. Three or four days that I strung together for a hunt. And I was hunting one for a couple of hours. And it would be best what I thought would be the first two hours of daylight. Then I'd get down and relocate. You know, it might be, might be a few hundred yards or it might be a half a mile to an, another place that I thought might be better for a, a late morning hunt. And mm -hmm. then by that time, it'd be time for a break. i take a little break and then hunt maybe two more before dark, something like that. That's pretty much an all-day hunt, especially hunting solo when you don't have anybody to consider but yourself. And yes, you don't sir. have to meet up with anybody or communicate with anybody. You know, mm -hmm. you're on your own and uh satisfying nobody but yourself and, and you're getting the most out of a day's worth of hunt now what kind of stand did you run when you would do that well early early years uh i used a when i first started i used a little homemade ladder stand uh oh my little dog fell out of my lap <laughs> oh you're good you're good uh, anyway uh, i made a homemade homemade uh ladder leaning ladder stand i only used it for two years and then uh, they had a a local guy down here, a friend of mine named Donnie Davis, and he, he designed and manufactured probably the first ever lock on stand on the mankind. And uh, he was a pipe fitter welder, and he was he was a pioneer in bow hunting in Louisiana. And uh, he designed that stand and, and used spurs to climb a tree and hang it and everything. And mm -hmm. I didn't see the one he first designed till later on, but a friend of mine had saw it and had made his own version of it. And then using his version, I made my version of it and started hunting out. That was Spurs in 1972 or 73. I'm not sure. One of those two years. And then we went, me and another hunting partner went through three different models before we got the, the perfect lock on that we could make. And, and the only reason it wasn't real perfect, I guess you could say, is because of the weight. We couldn't get it under 10 pounds. Yeah. About that time, a fellow named Dick Island from up northwest, he, he, come up with the lock-on limit and lock-on wind walker and the limit was 
five and uh, six and a half pounds, and the and the wind walk was five and three quarter pounds. Wow! And, uh, my hunting partner and I, we got each got us one. He he got the he got the limit, and I got the wind walker. But the wind walker was too small for my frame, so we traded. And I wound up with his limit, and he wound up with my wind walker. <laughs> That's the way to do it. <laughs> that was in the uh, I want to say the early nineties when that happened, and I. I still got the same limit that we we swapped with, but four years ago I went to hunt with a saddle. I, I got the saddle bug and got one, and I've been hunting with it since then. So yeah, I heard yeah. I got I got some buddies that kind of been bitten by that bug too. They're trying to get me to step over, but I like I got set up before. I'm a big old fella, and I just hadn't tried it yet. So <laughs> well, I, I got a hunting buddy, my main hunting buddy that we've been hunting together since '77, I guess something like that. And he weighs about 305 pounds, and he don't have any problem at all being in a saddle. He, mm -hmm. he, he loves his saddle, and he took a, the seat off of a longwolf climber, and he modified it, and that's what he uses to climb the tree with in conjunction with his saddle. Plus, plus uh, he's, he uses it for a platform, too. So his oh, yeah. actual platform is the seat of a longwolf climber that's modified. Oh, that's cool. So instead of having he uses it. The seat part as a platform, and use a saddle as a, as a top part for the climbing aid, and it just ratchets his way up. He'll he'll stand up straight and hang his tether where he can pick his feet up with the with the, the platform climber and, and take a bite on it and just jack himself on up a tree like that. Oh, that's awesome! Let me ask yeah. this: when you're now when you're sitting in it, does it get your does your back get sore any at all? Not as much as it does sitting on a lock-on stand. Really? that That's kind of my main thing. I don't want to be like, I've sat in like an arborist chair like that for working in demolition with my grandfather and stuff. And after a while, I kind of got tired of it and I just wasn't sure. <laughs> no, it, it's really comfortable. I have never sat longer than six hours, you know, but I, I'm 77 years old too. I, I think from what I understand, I'm the oldest saddle hunter in the world probably. I've never, all these forms and stuff about that saddle hunting, they, talked about age and everything and uh, i've never heard anybody being older than i am using a saddle and so you know I, I sit six hours almost regularly when i make a sit i got a back band i got my saddle that i sit in and hang in and then i got a, a back strap goes across my back and it's it's like sitting in a recliner actually you, it's really comfortable plus you can change your positions i, I i'm a, they have what they call sitters and leaners mm -hmm. i consider myself a sitter i spend most of my time sitting instead of leaning but I, I i changed my height with my tether and i'm, I'm modifying it about every 10 minutes or something like that i'll adjust it get a little bit different positions it's almost like watching tv in a recliner and every once in a while you got to kind of twist in the recliner a little bit <laughs> yeah just a little bit take pressure off of one place and apply it to another one it's, yes sir i understand that but now let me ask you this hunting across the public land like that have do you pay attention to the moon phases or the barometer or anything like that as you in know, deer movement I've, yeah i've never done a barometer at all i don't fool that but uh you know years ago i kept a lot of records i've always kept records and and uh and I, years ago i realized that i saw more deer during the first quarter and the last quarter of the moon phase than I did the new moon and full moon put together. I just, but I couldn't figure out why. And that mm -hmm. guy named Murray from up around, I think it was Minnesota. Uh, years ago, he come out with what we call the moon guide, deer hunter's moon guide. And I got a hold of one of those things and I started studying it. And I realized that, that that best predicted times that he had on there to hunt was during the first quarter and last quarter. And that's because the moon is overhead and, or underfoot. Mm -hmm. That's what I was just about to say. That's what we've always heard the old adage is that this, that moon's directly above your head or you don't see the moon, get out in the woods. Yeah, but, but he, he had it, he had it time just when it, the right time is going to be when it's going to be directly overhead. And it changes uh, about 55 minutes, I believe, every, every day. It, it advances. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And uh, he, he had a deal, and I, I, it, made, it made sense because on the first quarter last quarter the moon is either overhead or underfoot during the early mornings or the late evenings when you have your natural deer movement anyway and so i i've, I've lived by that thing i watch it closer i know every day i hunt i know what the moon position is going to be and i've seen it work so many times i can tell you story after story where 
I've been watching my watch, and I said, you know, I'm getting ready to see some deer move because the moon time's getting close. Mm-hmm. And uh, one particular thing, I was going to work one morning, and they had the first frost of the year, and I knew what time the moon position was. And it was a beautiful morning. It was bluebird. It was two days after a front had come through. Oh yeah. Uh, and it was just just perfect. And I was on a bus fixing to leave the parking lot to go into this plant to go to work, and and uh, I, I hollered at the bus. I would crank the bus up and I said, wait a minute, let me offer this thing. So I got off the bus and I, I, it took me about an hour and a half to get to a creek crossing. Uh, it really took me more than that. It took me an hour and a half to get to where I parked and I had another hour's walk into the creek crossing. And I got there just in time for the, for the morning moon position time. And when it was right, I saw, saw 23 deer across that creek. My mercy. That's like a That's cattle trail. Way. Yeah, nothing that I wanted to shoot, but 23 deer across it during the time period that the moon position was correct or, or predicted. Now, how did how did you calculate the moon time? Just for when it was overhead, you saw what time that was? Yeah, they have charts on the internet. Now, oh, okay. Plus, this guy put out a, a, a red moon guide or whatever called. He said he died and somebody bought his company and everything now. But what I'm saying, after seeing those 23 deer across during the moon position time, I sat there in the dark, and I never saw another deer. So, huh. you know, in the moon position time, I think it was about 9.30 to 10.15 or something like that, that that morning. So, But that's not the only time. I've seen I've seen it over and over and over again. A lot of times I've killed deer, and I check, and the, the kill would be in the, in the bracket of the moon time position. So, you know, I, they can say all they want about moon doesn't affect deer movement. But I, as much experience as I've had and other thing I've seen, I disagree with them. Yeah, I would too. That's I've always for for me starting from eleven to now, I've kind of based my hunting strategy off movement as well. Now going, oh, that was a little part real quick when you said you walked about an hour away from the truck. Would you say that I've kind of hunting like public, like I have done, like I have done too? Sometimes I walk far, or sometimes I wouldn't. But is that what you mainly did? Is try to get out and away from other people? Yeah, and, uh, excuse me. Good. I, uh, yeah, I would. I would try to get away from other people. I scouted to get away from other people. But I, I hunted a lot during the middle of the week on public land where other people be working, and I, and I wouldn't be working. I take advantage of having those woods to myself. Tuesday to to uh, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, some really outstanding days to hunt on pressured areas. That is a smart strategy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it hurts your paycheck a little bit, but uh, yes. you know, it's just what, what, where your uh, goals are, at, you know, your priorities are. Yes, sir. I understand that. That's what, in which some spots it matters to where the terrain was well. Because, like, over, I hunted this, uh, over here in the Okefenokee Swamp, which it's probably the closest representation to louisiana i mean it's woods that i've seen every critter in there but a skunk ape and uh it's just some wild woods God, i lost my track oh no I man how deep and the tree line would only be about 400 yards off the road and the deer would walk the fire breaks because everywhere else would be flooded but unlike piedmont north georgia where you'd have to walk about three maybe four miles back to get where because it'd be like 900 hunters on this one hunt that gets drawn for three, two times a year. So you right. really have to put some distance in between yourself, especially with a rifle hunt. You know, when you're bow hunting, you ain't worried about it. But right. with almost a thousand guns in there roaming on 30,000 acres, you just, it's a good thing to put distance between you. <laughs> yeah, my main objective is hunt where I find the most sign at, you know. And uh, I don't care what it is. It's just where I think a deer is going to be. Mm-hmm. and uh, just put myself in proximity just to get a good shot at him. So it can be near the vehicle or a long ways from the vehicle. Yeah. I think two and a half miles was the furthest from a vehicle that I killed one had to pack him out. So yeah, that's... I've killed close too, you know, so just take advantage of the sign you find. Do you tend to gravitate more towards like creek beds and kind of walking them and seeing where animals are crossed and then kind of spider webbing off from that? Oh, absolutely. You know, Deer are drawn to the creeks anyway. They, they parallel them. Uh, they cross them. That's where you a lot of food sources are. You big oak trees and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I've seen uh, deer swim across the river while I've kayaking before. <laughs> oh yeah, water don't mean nothing to them. They, they cross it any time. Mm-hmm. I've lived where they've been found, you know, out twenty miles from land actually swimming. You know. 
Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. That's crazy. Now, uh, let's see here. What, speaking of moon phases and stuff, kind of get back to deer movement. When have you seen your like mature buck movement? Has it been in the evening or more in the morning? Well, it's really uh, based for me on what time of season it is. You know, early season, uh, you're hunting food sources mostly, or I am, and you, you, your bucks, if you're talking about bucks, your bucks are kind of loners. They, they don't like to compete with does and yearlings and fawns for a food source. And, and the, when you're going into a tree to hunt, a lot of times I've run deer off of it that have sometimes come back or other ones in the area would come in after I'd run those off. And, and they after those acorns and, and they clean them up with a buck. I found he's not going to compete with a doe in the early season for acorns. And what he's going to do, if you get a good tree that's dropping good, it's a primary feed tree for the area, you know, it's going to continue to drop after those does and yearlings leave. And that buck's going to give them time to, to drop and get some more on the ground. He's going to come in there about 930 10 o'clock when a lot of hunters would be gone already and feed in the safety of just him being there with no hunters and i've seen that happen several several times multiple times mm -hmm. uh, and later on in the season the books are going to be moving kind of a little bit later in the morning too you know they still be traveling later in the morning yeah and then the evening times you know it's always the first light and the last light it's a good chance to hunt and uh, during the middays, during the rut, I noticed a lot of deer movement during that. You got to spend time in the woods. I don't, you know, you, you never know what they're going to do. They're all different. They have different personalities, just like different people. So just the more time you put at it. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, what's the biggest buck you've killed? Because I, I want to get into this real quick. That's the main reason I have interest in you is the how much, you, like you said earlier, you take notes of just about every deer you've killed and you've started videotaping hunts before it was even a thing to do. You know what I mean? Since like the internet blew up whitetail hunt. You know what I mean? Right. So that's, um, I, when did, what gave you the wherewithal to kind of start doing that? What, to kill the biggest one I killed? Or no, just like to start taking notes and stuff like that. Then we'll get into your biggest deer you uh, killed. <laughs> Sorry yeah, to confuse you. Uh, when I first got started hunting and everything, I got a, well, he passed away recently, but an uh, uncle of mine, one of my mother's baby brother, he was a pretty good hunter, and, and he spent a lot of time in the woods. He was a real good hunter, actually. Good fisherman, too. just an outdoorsman. Mm -hmm. He saw my interest in the deer hunting, and he, he kind of encouraged me to write stuff down and take a lot of pictures and told me I wouldn't be able to remember all the, the uh, events I was going to have and the kills I made and all that. And he said for write stuff down, keep numbers, keep stats, write stories, just just remember it in writings and everything. And then take a lot of pictures. Of course, there wasn't any video back then. And uh, so, and then I had a working a coworker there, a guy I worked with. And he he would go off to Texas make hunts. This is back in the sixties, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, he he all come back to those Texas hunts and bring pictures of deer they killed and everything. And, and I, it made an impression on me too. So just about from the get-go, I started keeping a journal and then taking a lot of pictures. I used to take slides because I could to buy the film and develop it and get three three pictures with slides compared to one with just getting prints made. Yeah, that's so pretty cool. Slides to start with. And I uh, just started keeping records. Now, at first, they, I mostly kept, I didn't keep up my gun hunts very much because I was so interested in bow hunting. And uh, I just kept up with shots and kills and stuff like that. And then through, the, through a period of about, I think it was six years, I started seeing the value of it. And I started wanting to do a little more. So then, you know, I was just limited by my imagination what I could come up with to, to record. So since then, my recordings has been writings. Whatever dare I kill, I write a story on it. Pictures video footage and and uh, and stats you know i keep up with numbers of how many days i've hunted how many bow hunts i've made how many deer i've seen how many hours on the stand it's just a, a just a volumes and volumes of stuff i keep up with and uh, it, it's been good I, you know it's not that i go back and read that stuff all the time but i have it and some of the records i've kept has aided me to go hunt check different locations i killed on before and make repeat in the same places 
in the same areas and stuff. So it's been a win-win deal for me. Plus, it's a lot of fun, too. It gives you something to do besides just hunt. Yes, sir. That's Since I've started this podcast, I've started keeping a journal myself. And I'm coming up on a year. September will be a year of doing it. So I've documented every archery tournament I've gone to or just any occasion out and about or a guest I've had on and stuff like that. So I, I do see a benefit in it. Oh, yeah, I keep up with Evan Hunt. I, you know, I, I go back, <laughs> excuse me, go back many, many years, back into the uh, to the 60s and 70s with it. Yeah, that's really cool. You ought to make a book. I've, <laughs> that'd be neat. Well, I'm a little intimidated by a book. I did the video deal. I, I made some videos that I sold and everything. I enjoyed that, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of, I'm on a downhill plunge right now with my butt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I heard that. It's his life. Um, how, speaking of, we talked how you used to do that. How do you hunt now? Because you, you being 77 years old, that's a, a big feat to be climbing up an oak tree. <clears throat> well, I still climb. I, I, I climb with spurs or I can climb with the woodpecker drill. I, I don't care for, care for uh, sticks, climbing sticks, anything like that. It's not mobile enough for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I don't hunt near about like I used to. My hunt started changing around the change of the century about 2000. We we changed where we lived in 2005. We moved from a home we lived in for I don't know 35, 36 years to up in the country, like in the woods. And uh, uh, instead of going on four day hunts like I used to be all the time, and that that was a big aid to my success was making a string of four days in a row on a hunt. Instead of doing that, I, I now make daily hunts. My wife, living up here in the woods, she needs me at home every night, so I can't be going off like I used to. So I'm hunting. Got permission to hunt from friends at a couple of local places here. And we got a few deer on our property, and so I just make daily hunts. I, I hardly even make a all day hunt anymore. I'll make a morning hunt or I'll go make an evening hunt, and uh. But I'm, like I say, I, I, I can do the same thing I used to. I just don't have the intensity with it. And I get tired like I used to never get tired. Well, I did get tired, but I, I could go. And I just can't go like I used to. Yeah, I hear that. I, I completely understand, especially in this heat right now. I don't know how it is in Louisiana, but right now you can about cut the humidity in South Georgia. It rains every day over here for right now. Yeah. Especially this year, it's been really wet this year. In fact, I got a thunderstorm moving in right now. I can hear it. I got, I got one too. <laughs> you might be able to hear it on the a recording. Hopefully, be kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> now, kind of getting into uh, there was one story I want to get into, and it's about one of the more wilder things you you've seen in the woods. Do you uh, do you want to get in with that and kind of explain what that was? The UFO. Yes, sir. Because <laughs> I. I I, I'm a fan of the idea. I know a lot of people think they're not a good thing, but it might be a China drone. I don't know, <laughs> but it's it's definitely a quest for crazy stuff. Uh, you know, if, I've only seen one in my life, and, and uh, I would be a real doubter too if I hadn't seen it. But uh, I'm a believer now, just uh, because I got a real good look at it, and it was really unbelievable. And it's, Never, never heard of anything, anything like it. So it was quite an experience. But I was on a huge area of forty-two thousand acres back in the in the late seventies and early eighties, and, and it was just a huge place and hunting there. And I was on an evening hunt and hunting a big old cottonwood tree out in the middle of a big uh, wheat field. And I'd been sitting riding on the road, looking out there a hundred yards or so. I'd been seeing some bucks out there under that big cottonwood tree. So after several trips there, trying to figure out how to climb everything, I went ahead and, and uh, went and made a, made a huge effort to climb it. And I was able to climb it. And the tree was so big, I had to add a six-foot extension to my chain that held my lock on stand on it. Good Lord. Just <laughs> a huge, huge tree. Used my fingers down in the, uh, in the cracks in the park to help climb with the spurs. Had to be careful where I put my gas because I had to put it where it wouldn't go in a crack and go on the, the outer bar. Yeah. Finally got up there and made the hunt. I saw some bucks, but they didn't get close enough to shoot with a boat. And I climbed down. When I got to the ground, I then I took my pack off and set it down and, and uh, started taking my spurs off, bent over to take my spurs off. And it was it was pretty dark to be shooting a deer, but it wasn't too dark 
to see up looking up at the sky like you know the, the sun had went down but it was still the skies were still bright and I was about a hundred foot from a hundred hundred and fifty yards from a tree line to to the north of me no I'm, I'm sorry that would be to the east of me and uh <clears throat> and anyway I, I, I didn't hear nothing I didn't see anything I felt something it's just like something was, I wasn't there by myself you got your sixth I, sense was kicking in. Yeah, it was, it was really strange. And so I, I raised, I stood straight up, and I, I looked back at the tree line, and this uh, unidentified flying object was coming my way about 50 foot over the top of those trees, and the trees were probably 80 foot, maybe 100 foot tall. Mm. Not, not 100 foot, probably 80 foot tall. And it was just over the top of those trees coming my way. And this thing, Connor, was huge. Wow. I just can't, it's hard to express how big it was. It was three dimensional. It was like in a check formation. It was like a, a, a V with a, one half side of the V was missing. And it was, looked like a, well, my buddy, we had two other guys I was hunting with, they, they were in a different place than I was, and both of them saw it too. One of the guys was on my camp porch, and, the, and this flying object he described came across the Mississippi River and tugboats lit it up with their spotlights, the floodlights. And it flew right over, if I say it flew, it floated, I guess. Yeah. Right over the top of my camp, and he watched it go. And then my other hunting buddy, he was he was driving on the road and saw it and got out of his truck and, and got in the ditch, kind of high from it. And then I looked up at it, and it was coming over them trees. And like I said, it was three-dimensional. And, and the, one of my hunting buddies, he described it as a motel, a two-story motel. On one side, it was about a hundred foot long and probably two story high, and it had handrails on it. It was like like two 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 levels. God. Lower level and the upper level, and both of them had hand. They had doors on it with lights by each door. It looked like a, a, a motel up in the air. And of course, I didn't see much about that other side until it got right over me. That thing was going. I couldn't understand how it was so low, so slow. With no sound at all, mm -hmm. and it was able, as big as it was, not to fall to the ground. I just couldn't understand how it could be up and go so slow and be so low. That <laughs> still, is wild. <laughs> but that thing come over me. I guess if you took a plumb bob and dropped it from the center of it, the plumb bob would hit the ground probably thirty yards from where I was at. And oh was my like god, that's danger close then. <laughs> yeah, about 100, 150 foot. It was going so slow. I could have either walked fast or jogged slow and kept up with it. And, and it wasn't thing, like, was it like emitting a hum or anything? Or how, like, how are the animals acting? Were the woods like dead silent? You know how like when a predator's in the woods, everything kind of just gets dark. quiet? It was getting dark. It was quiet and still. And I mean, it didn't make a sound. I mean, total silence. Oh, my gosh. I, I was I hid behind a tree. I got up against that. And I walked a tree on a stand behind it when I think I didn't know what was, what it was or what it was going to do or where it was going or where it came from. Mm -hmm. It was just huge and it was slow and low. <laughs> Dang. That's some uh, crazy you know, I, stuff. I had my camera in my pack right there. All I had to do was reach down and get it. Took a 35 millimeter camera, but I was so enthralled watching it. You know, I just couldn't take my eyes off of it. Didn't uh, think about it. Yeah, I mean, I probably wouldn't either, to be honest, because I just stand there looking at it. But that was a that was a one and done deal, you know. And and you know, I write everything down. I, I had a, I keep calendars. I want calendar. I write every hunt when my hunt started, when it ended, uh, what I saw, what I shot at, what I hit, what I missed, and where I was at. On the, right on the calendar. And I went back, and checked all my calendars, checked all my writings for those. I couldn't remember exactly what season was, what what year it was. I was trying to find some more details on it. I can't find anything I wrote about it at all. It's almost like I was embarrassed or ashamed. Somebody would say I was crazy, and I didn't make any any uh, notice of it at all, written or, or whatever. You know, it just well back, remember. yeah, well back then that people probably woulda. It's in today's age, and or I should say, forgiving age. Everybody's and with the internet, everybody's becoming a little more open to it, especially with the government now releasing documents and stuff like that. You know, so. And of my hunting buddies there, you know, one of them was a marine biologist, another one was a uh, pharmaceutical pharmacist, and uh, I mean, these are educated guys and everything, you know, and, and 
they can't explain it either. They don't know, but they saw the exact same thing I did and described it the same as I did. Saw it during the same time. I even got a map of the place and drew a line, lined up our sightings where each one of us was and drew a line for where it come across the river. It was around a straight line right over the boat, all three of us. Man. That, that, I think I would have packed the bow up and kind of went home on that day. <laughs> I said, we're up, that's enough. <laughs> yeah, we talked about it. We got back together that night, but, you know, it was just, it was just phenomenal. It was just let it go. Well, like, didn't you say last time we talked, didn't you say that it was a bunch of cops and other people that saw it, like, across the state or something like that? No, about 20, 25 years later, I was at home, and they had a TV special on. Uh-huh. UFOs, and they had a, they had interviewing different people that, and their sightings, what they, they described what they saw, and they took a computer a computer program and they, they read Like CGI'd read it, kind of? Yeah, they, got, they built what they saw on, on, on a computer program. And it was the exact same thing that I saw. I mean, the exact same thing. And one of the guys was a cop and, and uh, on patrol and all that. So, you know, it was legitimate people. You know, yeah. Crap, not some some drunk or something. Yeah, or your gas station crackhead. <laughs> right. My wife said, "Come look. This is what I saw right here. Same thing. And it, they had a three dimensional computer, similar similarity of it." Well, that's pretty good validation right there for people you didn't even know, and especially it being years later. That's yeah, that's uh, wild. Yeah, My, my UFO, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, Mr. Womack, if, if you got anything else you want to talk about, if you want to plug your YouTube channel, we're going on probably right at 45, 50 minutes here. I don't want to keep you too much on the Sunday evening, so you can still enjoy a little bit of it. Well, you know, not, not really. Uh, I don't have anything for sale or anything like that, but I, I do have a YouTube channel. You can find it. the name of it is my name, Warren Womack, and I got about 250 little short clip, video clips on there of some kills and different things, and I'm on, I'm on uh, Instagram as Warren Womack, and Facebook is Warren Womack. Mm-hmm. I started sharing some stories on Facebook, some of my kill stories. Uh, just during the summertime, I like to have a little hunting-related project, and I've done different things in different summers, and this summer, I'm, I'm posting some kill stories on Facebook, so... You know, mm-hmm. that's pretty much how I came across you on Facebook because I think I was either on the traditional archery page or something, which I've seen you on the Hunting Publix podcast and the Stick Boys. I listened to all of them, which those are seem like some pretty good guys, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, um, other than that, uh, I will say this on your YouTube channel, I did watch this one video. It was a one of, I believe it was two spikes, and you just the way you narrated the video, it was really cool and had me like laughing and actually ed- pretty educational, too. Just for that little, this little bit I have talked to you, I've kind of had epiphanies in my hunting strategy that I feel like I've been missing that, just that one puzzle to help kind of get me to that next, you know, the next step. And I feel right. like I've kind of gotten that from you, just from the little bit I've talked to you. Well, my, my YouTube videos are short and sweet because when I first started putting them together, I was on dial-up internet and it just took forever to upload one of them. You know, I had to keep it as short and as low quality as I could to... to be able to download it in a couple of hours, just a minute or so. Mm-hmm. So, but most of that stuff is show and tell. You know, I'm talking about the deer I killed and how, what it took to kill him and little details on it and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not nothing like the videos that the guys in hunting public and people are doing nowadays. You know, they, they make real deal. It's a big yeah. deal. With, it's just kind of little show and tell stuff with a bunch of kills. Yeah, sir. That's why I'm, I'm graduating up to that. I'm getting there. Like I say, it's all me right now, just by myself. I mean, I got my brother and stuff I plan on bringing on. He's a big fisherman. He really don't hunt a lot. But right now, I'm working one step at a time. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> right. So, but other than that, I want to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I will say this. I want to have you, if you want to come back on during turkey season, because we didn't even bring up the old thunder chicken. Because that is my favorite bird to hunt when it ain't deer season. And I'd like to have you on and we'll talk about that during turkey season. That's, that sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah, you know, I love the turkey hunt, but I always work construction to make a living. Mm-hmm. Oops.
recording again. I don't know where I was at. Uh, turkey hunting, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, on my turkey hunting, you know, I love to turkey hunt, but back in the old days when I should have been doing good hunting, I guess you say, I spent time trying to make a living because I spent so much time hunting during the regular regular uh, deer season that I didn't work enough, and well, I'm, all, I'm all messed up. I, I, I'm sorry. No, you're yeah. fine. That's just lightning strike. You're fine. I can edit yeah, it out. I spent so much time hunting during during the deer season that I couldn't take off of the turkey season. I, I, I just had to work to make up enough money to deer hunt a game. But once I retired, it was a whole different ball game then, so I spent more time turkey hunting now. And I'm just trying to catch up for all those years that I, that I had to take off from me. Well, I love my turkey hunt. I heard that, sir. Well, definitely, we'll get into it this season. And I want to, again, thank you for coming on. And be careful on that storm and that lightning. <laughs> it sounds like it's popping over there. That thing cut us off, did I was just talking away. I didn't know I was lost. You're good. I'll make it go together. And uh, like I say, if you don't mind, send me a couple of pictures so I can put it on this post because it'll be going up tonight. And uh, other than that, thank you very much, sir. And I will keep following you. That, uh, at, at the UFO tree with me up in the stand. That'll work. That'll work. All right. Thanks, thanks for having me on, Con. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. All right. Good night. That was awesome. Just finishing talking to Warren Warmack, everybody. That was a great podcast. I'm off to work with a little bit of splicing on this one. He has a rainstorm over on in Louisiana. I got one going on here. So bear with me on this one. But other than that, this is going to be a probably the best podcast episode on this platform so far. So thank you to everyone who has supported and followed this platform. It truly means a lot. And for the you bow hunters out there, shoot straight and be safe this September. <laughs>